So we're doing our study in the book, uh, really the life of Elijah. And so if you missed last week, we did an introduction. We're going to be taking some time going through and looking at this prophet, his life, and and how mightily the Lord used him. And I would say some of his human frailties as well that we're going to see. And uh, we'll be focusing primarily in 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19. And a few other scriptures in the Bible that mention Elijah as well. But one thing that we, we closed last week, looking at his life, the climate of what was going on in Israel at this time was one of complete apostasy, complete idolatry. Uh, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord uh, to anger than any of the kings that were before him. They set, He and his wife Jezebel set up, uh, she was from Tyre, in, in the, the country of Tyre, and T-Y-R-E, and there uh, they, he, so, so Ahab intermarried with someone he should not have that wasn't a, a Jew, that, and there's consequences for that. And she was a worshiper of Baal, and she brought a lot of her Baal priest with her. And Baal worship in the groves and so forth became the religion of Israel in the, uh, in the kingdom. And so they, they took down altars of God. They took down an altar of God and broke it down in Carmel, where well, later Elijah is going to call down fire from heaven. We're not nearly there yet. But they, and in those places, they were setting up altars to Baal. They even set up a temple to Baal, Ahab and Jezebel. And we said it's one thing when people sin, it's another thing when it's sanctioned, when it's like the law of the land, uh, idolatry. Uh, and, and God can't bless that. But also God's not powerless against that. And that's how we closed last week. It, when it looks like Satan has all the right people in all the right places and all the right traps set and all the people to, to take over, basically, to take over a city, a nation, a, a world, Okay, uh, a government, he's got all the people in place, and it looks like all he has to do is give the word, and it's done. God is not at a loss. God had one man, one man that wore animal skins and wasn't trained in, the, in any of the schools and didn't travel in any of the political circles and didn't come from the royal kingly line. One man God had prepared. We talked about that. God has arrows in his quiver. And that is people, and that is human beings. That's you and me. I want to be. I want you to be. God wants us all to be. We're not bystanders. We're not looking and reading about the wonderful things of God only. We're walking with this God who does impossible things like we sang. And he, in this hour, it looks to me very similar. It's different, but it's similar, if you know what I mean. It's, it's similar in the sense that we think things are gone so far spiritually over into darkness, over into, we can call it whatever we want, new age, we can call it Marxism, we can call it humanism, we could call it uh, all of these things that it's gone so far that there's no reeling it back in. But the one thing we leave out of that equation is Almighty God. He, He can step in whenever He wants to. We've seen Him do it. In the Bible, we see Him do it where he just steps in. He allows things to play out for a while, and then he shows himself strong. We looked at Moses, Moses in the face of Egypt, right? 
And Pharaoh, Egypt was the most powerful country in the world. Pharaoh would have been the most powerful man on the planet in a natural sense at that time. And God had his Moses, who, who was slow of speech. And God used him as to be the deliverer. And they came out, didn't they? Every one of them. There wasn't a hoof left behind. They came out with their children. They came out with their cattle and their sheep and all their stuff. And Satan didn't get any of it. Pharaoh said, well, you can go, but your little ones stay here. No, we're all going to go. And guess what? They all went. We can't forget God. We cannot forget God. And so we're looking at this man, Elijah. I love, I love him. I love the, the story of his life and the account of his life. It's, it's powerful to me. It's encouraging to me. And I think it is to all of us. I want you to open... We're jumping ahead you know, chronologically, but I want to look at one verse. 1 Kings 19, verse 10. Now, this, this verse we're reading is actually taken, you know, being after he had called down fire from heaven, and Jezebel put this death threat on him for the, for the next day, right? And now this mighty prophet is afraid. We're going to get to all that story in weeks to come. But I want you to look at this one verse, 1 Kings 19, 10. And he said... The Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah, when he had fled? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Okay, so this is after great, a great victory. It's a wonderful story in itself that we're going to talk about. But I want you to see something about Elijah. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord of hosts, and he had been. That's a good thing. You know, we think of jealousy as a bad thing. I'm envious, I'm covetous, I'm jealous of what you have, and I wish it were mine in an evil sense, okay? But when it comes to God, the, the Lord says, I am a jealous God. That is my name, he even says. And that, in the sense, he means that the honor that is due him is due him. It is due him alone. The people that he chooses uh, to, to be his people are to be his people, not, not to commit spiritual adultery with other gods and other interests. In that sense, he is very jealous, and he works to, to keep us to himself. And we ought to work to keep ourselves only and holy for the Lord. Amen? And this is what... Elijah is saying here, and I just wanted to see it. This, the Lord used this man. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. He had heard reports. He says it here in verse 10, that uh, the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. Yes, they had as a whole. They had thrown down the altars and bro literally broken up and destroyed and removed the altars of God from the land. They've slain thy prophets. There was a school of prophets, and Jezebel had them killed. Obadiah took a hundred of them somehow. He managed to get a hundred of them out of there before they were killed, and he hid them and fed them during the famine and the drought and kept them alive. It's a wonderful thing that he did, but he kept some prophets alive. But, uh, so they had slain the prophets, and he says, and now they want to take my life away. But he, he's jealous for the Lord. In, in a good sense. I want you to turn with me and look at John chapter 2. 
John chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse 14. Well, verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten him up. What was Jesus doing? Did he lose his temper? No, he didn't lose his temper. Was he mad because someone offended him? No. He, he says, you, you've taken my father's house, and you're the covenant people, and this is his temple that was built. Where Solomon, well, this would have been the second temple, but still was dedicated to God and the worship of Jehovah, and you've made it a den of thieves. And he says, the zeal. To me, that's kind of like uh, very similar to Elijah's jealousy for the Lord. The question would have been, okay, he's very jealous for the Lord of hosts. Jesus did this. And it was written about him. That's actually a good, good trait, by the way. It's a good trait. It was in Elijah. It was in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, being jealous for the things of God, being uh, defending his honor, defending his name. A lot of people uh, in the church are hurt, and a lot of times it's just because we're personally hurt. But it's a real difference when, when our hurt is because God's name has been taken in vain, where God's character has been slighted, where the word of God or the name of God, has the testimony of Christ has suffered because of some act. It's not just, oh, they lied about me. Uh, and all I did was love them and pray with them. It's more than that. It's for God's sake, for God's honor. We need to have a, a holy anger, a holy uh, jealousy, I guess you would say, for the name and reputation of the Lord. That's important. doesn't mean we fly off the handle and do whatever we want. Elijah certainly did not. He was very methodical in what he did. He was very led by the Lord in what he did. But that inward jealousy for the Lord's honor is a good thing. I just wanted to read this uh, real quickly from Psalm 139. David, had, David was similar, <clears throat> similar heart. Psalm 139, 21 and 22. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. You know, we talk about hatred and enemies, and this is supposed to be a godly man and forgive everybody. His point is the people that are God's enemies, that he, he adopts them as his enemies. He's sided with the Lord. I think that's the whole point is that we are sided with the Lord. We're not siding even with ourselves or our own reputation. We're taking sides with God. We're identifying with the Lord, okay? And this is what Elijah, he's looking at the land, Israel, Israel, right? 
God's chosen people from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The nation of Israel is given over to idolatry and to Baal worship, and he's eaten up with it. He just, and, and he's not sure what he could do, and that's the next question. What could he do? One man, right? One man that, that's from uh, this tish, Tishbite, you know, from this land of uh, where, where the people are, are pretty much blue-collar workers and, and tending to sheep and things like that, and he's from this, this place. What could one man do? Well, he knew one thing he could do. He could pray. There's one thing he could do. Elijah was a man of like passions like as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain on the earth for the space of three years and six months, and it rained not. It rained not on the earth. He knew he could pray, and he did pray. I imagine this was a man of prayer. I imagine he had a life of prayer. I think we could assume that that he, he knew he could pray, and he began to pray. So knowing God and walking with the Lord, that's when we can start identifying with the Lord in his heart and burden. Once we have the burden, then we go to the Lord in prayer. And we say, what can I do, God? What would you have me to do? Isn't that very similar all through the scriptures? Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king in Persia. He was a, one of the Jews that was been taken captive. Okay, he grew up over there, was a cupbearer to the king, and he gets a report. How are things in Jerusalem? Uh, they're horrible. The city is a reproach. The wall's broken down. There's no defense to the city. There's no order. There's no, uh, it's a reproach. It's a reproach to God. And he had this burden in a whole other country. But what could he do about it? He went and prayed. He sought the Lord. He fasted and prayed. And God, of all people, God raises up a cupbearer and says, you're going to be the one. You're going to be the one that I use to rebuild the walls around that city and establish some order and security and, and bring some order back that needs to be brought back after the captivity. The burden comes, and then we go to the Lord in prayer, and the instructions come. Don't think he can't use you. Don't think he can't use you. You're not too young, and you're not too old and you're not too new of a Christian or too old of a Christian, God can use us. Amen. So here's what, here's what Elijah knew. He knew he could pray. He knew what the Bible said. He knew the, the Old Testament scriptures because he knew that if the people turned from the Lord, there was going to be consequences. It sounds like a simple thing, but don't we see our, our country just walking happily zippity doo down the road away from God and they think there's going to be no consequences we want to live a homosexual lifestyle we think there'll be no consequences just just leave us alone let it let us live this way we want to live this way. We want gambling legal we want everything we want to do everything we want to do and we're, we're just not going to be any consequences for that there are going to be consequences there are going to be consequences amen sin is a reproach to any people and and uh, Elijah knew this. He knew the Lord. He knew his laws. He knew his ways. I just want to read this. For time's sake, I'll read it quickly. Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17. So this way back when the Lord's given his commands. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and that you turn aside and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. 
So Moses is about to die. He doesn't go into the promised land, but he's speaking this right here. And he's telling the Israelites, God's calling me home. I'm not going to get to go. But just remember this. Take heed that when you go to that land, you don't turn aside from serving God. You're going to find yourself serving other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you. That's what Israel's experienced in, in, in Elijah's day. And he shut up the heavens that there be no rain. Elijah knew this. He knew the word of God. When people turn, when we as a nation turn from the Lord and we turn to idols, God's wrath is going to be kindled against us as a people. And he, he said, this is his holy justice. Doesn't mean he's abandoned them or forsaken them. He's going to bring some consequences, though. And he says right here, that, and he shut up, the Lord shuts up the heaven that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. So I believe Elijah knew this. He knew the Lord. He knew the word of the Lord. And here, here's the whole thought. So he's going to pray that it doesn't rain. And he does pray for three years and six months according to my word. Let's, let's look at that real quickly. Look at your Bibles back in 1 Kings 17. I'll just read it. 17.1. And Elijah the Tishbite. This is the first time that we read about him. He just steps onto the scene, y'all. He steps onto the scene and he's, talk, scene and he's talking to the king of Israel. First time we see him, bam, he's meeting with the king. He's, Elisha the Tishbite was of the inhabitants of Gilead. He said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. So he prayed, we're told in James. He prayed earnestly. He knew he could pray. And so he, he prayed. But the thought is that it's better to suffer some physical, I guess, trouble or calamity like drought. It is better to suffer that than a spiritual drought. Don't think it's not, okay? Better to suffer something physically uh, than the, to go through something outwardly, a circumstance, rather than to forsake the Lord. And so God <clears throat> allows these things a lot of times to play out in our lives. What, what was, I mean, we don't have scriptures to every one of these. We have that he was very jealous for the Lord of hosts. But he couldn't, Elijah probably couldn't think of anything worse than the people of God not following God. It'd be better for them to go without rain for a while. It would be much better for them as a people, individually and as a nation, to go and, and suffer the consequences physically of a drought rather than to forget God and worship Baal. And the whole point of the drought was it had a purpose to it, to turn people back to him, to turn people back to the Lord, to show them uh, the error of their way and to bring them back. Could there be anything worse? Think about it than Israel, than a lawgiver. The Lord's the lawgiver. He gave it to Moses, and Moses gave it to the people. Israel had the law and didn't keep it. 
But would there, could there be anything worse than a lawgiver who would give specific commands like we, against idolatry, for example, and then that lawgiver not have the power to enforce it? And that's what was taking place. The people are living in sin in Israel in Elijah's day. Tearing down the, they tore down an altar of Baal over here in Carmel, and nothing happened. Nobody died. Lightning didn't come down from heaven. Uh, they reared up a, a, an altar to Baal, and they started putting them all over the land. And they started killing godly men, the prophets of the Lord, with the sword, capital punishment. If you're a servant of Jehovah, nobody, they're getting away with it, right? Getting away with it. And Elijah's, they're not really, but my point is that in appearance, and so you, they probably think there's a lawgiver way back there in Moses' day. It has nothing to do with us now. I want to know if he's still around or still living because we're getting away with murder. We're getting away with whatever we want to get away with. And I think a lot of people today feel the same way. They're making their schemes and their plans, and the wealthiest people on the, in the entire planet, they've got people with more money than some countries have that are doing what they want to do, orchestrating things that are going to affect other people, whole nations and so forth. And they think we can get away with it. We can get away with it. And God's not, God allows things to go so far and then he stops it. He's not going to let it go forever. It always goes longer than what we like, but he showed himself strong. I just wanted to read this. I thought it was a wonderful scripture. Psalm 50, 21. These things thou hast done. This is God speaking. He's speaking about the wickedness of the Israelites. You've done these things. These things thou hast done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as you are, as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. You know what he's saying? The people are sinning. That's in David's day. And the Lord's saying, these people are uh, in David's day, we're doing all kinds of horrible sins as well. And, and the Lord speaks and goes, you did them, and I kept silent. I'll say everything you did. Who was it? One, I forgot who in our church taught Sunday school about digging the hole through the wall in the, uh, in the temple. Uh, Zerubbabel, was it that? Yeah. And all the the abominations that were in the temple. It was a picture of digging through the temple and what's going on in secret. God knows it all. He sees it all. And he goes, these things you've done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was altogether such a one as thyself. You thought I was just another person like you are. But I see it. He goes, and I will reprove it, and I'm going to set it in order right before your eyes, and you're going to see it. It's almost like a warning to, to the wicked. He lets things go, and people think, hey, there's no God around. We're getting away with it. We're getting away with it. Another year passes. Another decade passes. We're getting away with it. We're getting away with it. And God says, I've seen what you've done. I'm going to set it in order. I'm going to reprove. And he's about to reprove in Israel with Elijah. Physical sufferings are a small thing compared to spiritual waywardness. Because everything spiritual has to do with our relationship with God. And everything spiritual in our relationship with God has to do with eternity. They're eternal. Everything here is temporal. 
so uh, even the drought was only three and a, the famine was only three and a half years, right? It wasn't forever. It's not still going on. The drought came and went right within a short period of people's lifetimes that were living at that time. But the apostasy, if not repented of, that is eternal consequences, right? And the idolatry. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. Physical calamity, right? A physical infirmity. We don't know what it was. He prayed for God to take it away. God didn't take it away. God told him, I've got this because the abundance of revelation that's been given you, Paul, you, I don't want you to get lifted up in pride. You're going to get lifted up in pride. That's spiritual. That's serious. And then God couldn't use him anymore. God can't use somebody that's lifted up with pride. And so he gives him this infirmity in his flesh. And it, guess what? It stayed with him. It stayed with him throughout his life. But he also continued to serve the Lord humbly. So the physical calamity is nothing compared to the spiritual. And the physical calamity is also God's way of keeping his people to turn, bringing us to, with our, to turn our attention to him. You know that story in the Bible where Absalom, David's son, had been uh, away. He was away in Syria three years, then he came back, and he was home, home for two years back in Israel, and he never saw the king's face for a two-year period. And <clears throat> he sent to Joab, who was David's general, basically, and said, can you get me in to see my dad? Uh, I want to see him. Now, jo Absalom had all kinds of pride and, and different problems. I don't think his, obviously, his heart wasn't pure. But he ended up saying, I can't get anybody's attention here. So he said, Joab's field is right next to mine. He told his servants to go light it on fire and burn up Joab's field. Finally, Joab comes over and says, what, what in the world are you doing? Well, this is the only way I could get your attention. Now, I'm not saying he was right, okay? My point is sometimes the Lord allows things to happen, a sickness, or you're or you're, you're striving in, in business. I can't get it off the ground. I keep trying to start this business or whatever, and I'm working hard, and it's just not going well. I think it's not always coincidence. It's not always just up to chance. Sometimes God's trying to get our attention to where we look strictly on Him and only and solely on, on Him to turn us back. And that's what He's trying to do with Israel. That's what he was going to do through this prophet Elijah in a very short time. We're not going to, certainly not going to get there tonight. But the drought that is a response, a result of a godly man's prayers who prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, uh, that drought had a specific purpose to it. It wasn't just punishment. It was the desire was to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. Because he said, you go serve idols, the wrath, my wrath will be kindled, and I'm going to shut up the heavens, and it's not going to rain. They should have known that. They should have known that. And so sometimes God does that and tries to, in our, in our own lives, he might send a drought of sorts. You know what I mean? He might send a drought where you're a Christian, you love the Lord, but, you know, you're getting off track somehow. Maybe you're putting a business first. Maybe you're putting something else before the Lord. And he will send drought. And what he wants us to do, and it's important that we learn this, he wants us to connect the dots. He wants us to see, wait a minute, I've tried this 15 times over here, 
and I prayed every time before I started it, and it's failed every single time, God wants us to connect the dots. Wait a minute. Maybe he's trying to get my attention. There's something else in my life he's wanting to do. There's something else in my life he's wanting to teach me. There's something in my heart that's not quite right. Maybe, maybe something that's drifted away from the Lord. You understand there's something, and he wants us to connect the dots instead of just saying, bad luck again. He wants us to say, wait a minute, God, are you trying to get my attention? Is this something you're, t- I'm going to just put everything on hold. That's when we pray and we fast and we put things on hold. And we say, what is it, Lord? What are you trying to show me? He was trying to show this nation their way, waywardness, okay? And he wanted them to connect the dots. But so, so the first meeting, the first moment that we see of Elijah, he's speaking to this wicked, idolatrous king. Bam, he just steps onto the scene. He'd already been in God's quiver, right? Pulled him out, and he's using him right here. And you see this old, I don't know how old he was, but I mean the old religion in in the sense of the true to the Lord versus this Baal worship. And we see weakness in Ahab. We talked about last week, moral weakness. That's why he could be so easily steered around by the nose by his wife. Um, And we see this man of God who's zealous for the Lord of hosts, just the two of them. And, y'all, this was no game. I mean, he's appearing before the king. The king had already killed all these other prophets. What, who's to say he wasn't going to, when I go talk to Ahab, that he's not going to kill me? And so it took courage. It took courage to do that. But you know what's amazing? He, God wasn't ready for him to die right there. He had more for him to do. I think it was Clendenin. Or it was, I don't know who. Maybe I heard him say it. I don't know if he originated this saying that a man is invincible as long as he's in the will of God. And so, guess what? Elijah goes, no soldiers with him, nothing like that. He goes face-to-face, meets with King Ahab, and he says what he has to say, and he left. And nobody stopped him. You ever think, that's, that's a miracle in itself, right? That's a miracle in itself. So I'm telling you, there's not going to be rain, but according to my word, I'm going to be responsible for this drought that's coming. It's me. For God's sake, the Lord before whom I stand. And he comes and he goes. You know, it's, it's similar to Jesus' life when, when they picked up stones more than once to stone him. And you think, okay, this is, if you're just reading and you don't know anything, this is going to be the end. He's in a mob of people, a crowd of people, They're accusing him of blasphemy and everything else. And they picked up stones to stone him. He's done for. And the Bible says he just passed right through. He just walked right through, like part in the Red Sea. And nobody laid a hand on him. They didn't throw one stone. Why? Because God was in control. His father was in control. And Jesus was in the will of his father. Elijah did not get killed like the other prophets at this time because God, he was in the will of God. And the Lord was not finished with him yet. Amen? The Lord wasn't finished with him yet. So I want to close with this thought. If, if we're to ask, okay, and we could say this with a lot of people in the Bible, what's the source of their strength? Right? What's the source? source what made Elijah so different than the average 
faithful Jewish person of his day? Or what makes Elijah, what made him so different than an average believer like us sitting in this room today? And if we think, okay, well, there was just something about him. God made him a little different. You know, God, from the beginning, created him or did a little something different with him. Then we could just kind of throw in the towel and say, well, that was, that was just God did that special for him. But what we're going to see as we study this, that there was nothing inerrant to the man himself. There was nothing that just by himself that he was better and more powerful than anybody else. And I'm, I'm not saying that to be derogatory. I'm saying that because even, even later, after he calls down fire from heaven, and Je- Jezebel puts this death threat on him. He literally goes out, and, and, ha- and I'm not blaming him, but he went out and had a pity party, and he was afraid. And he lay, uh, got up under a juniper tree, and he said, God, just kill me now. I've had enough. I'm done with it. So if he was just this superman in himself, he wouldn't have done that, right? The Bible says Elijah in James chapter 5 was a man of like passions like as we are. So understand what I'm saying. Was he special? Did God use him in a special way? Did he trust God in a special way? No more than yes, but just in himself, apart from the Lord, as a human being, he was no more than any of us. And the Bible makes the point to tell us that. He was a man of like passions, like as we are. Okay? And yet he prayed that it wouldn't rain on the face of the earth, and it rained not for three years and six months. So what does this tell us? It's the, the power that he had, calling down fire from heaven, standing before the king, and then walking away in, in such, I would say, a holiness and an authority and a power. Uh, this was from the Lord. And that same source of power is available for all of us. That is my point. It's not that Elijah was super special. I, I, I love him and I admire him greatly as I do Moses and David and so many in, in the word of God. But there was nothing special about them. They were people. They were people that trusted God and God chose to use. So it's almost like when we read about, and, and our person is Elijah right now, but when you read about someone like this or David killing Goliath, right, or Moses parting the Red Sea, it ought to encourage us. Don't look at them as almost mythical superheroes. I think we cheat ourselves when we do that, and we also excuse ourselves that, you know what, God may want to use you that way. God may want to use you that way. And if I think it's only for this elite group of superheroes, then we're never going to seek the Lord for that. But if I say, no, this is available to all of us, he was a man subject to like passions like as we are. And he prayed it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. And the heavens were shut up and it didn't rain for three and a half years. That It's almost like an invitation to come on. Who wants to be used by God? Who wants to walk in this authority of an Elijah? I do. There's nothing in this man's life that couldn't be in your life. There's nothing in his life that could not right now today be in your life and my life. His prayer life, the power, the authority, 
uh, the hearing from God, the being led by the Lord in the different places he would go. And so uh, the three things, and I'll, I'll try to, well, no, I think I'm going to close with that. Next week, uh, next week we're having our vacation Bible school, and so we're going to uh, we're gonna have a prayer meeting next Wednesday night. We're going to pray for VBS, and we won't have prayer for the next two Sundays. Because this week we got a work night. Next Sunday night we have a dinner on the grounds. We'll have one after church. So we won't have prayer. So next week we're going to pray. And we're going to pray for vacation Bible school and different things. But uh, when we come back together on this study, like I said, if you, if you have time just in your reading, read through 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19. And just be familiar. I think you would get much more out of the study. But there, we're going to look at three things that you could say set Elijah apart to be used in this way when we do meet in, again on this study in two weeks. But D, if you come, I'm just going to close with that, y'all. And uh, I, I pray that we would come to the altars tonight. And here's my thought as far as what we would pray, that we would pray to be used by the Lord in, in supernatural ways. If he says these signs shall follow them that believe, and you read that list of things at the end of chapter of Mark, casting out devils, raising the dead, speaking with other tongues, and so forth, we there's no reason, y'all, there's no real reason that we can't be used by the Lord in the same way. And if I always think that's for Bible times, that's for Bible characters, that's for Noah and Moses and and David killing the bear and the lion and Goliath, then we're going to sit tight. We're going to be content where we are. I was reading that contentment can be holy or unholy. If, if, if we're discontent, we're not happy with what God has given us, like um, complaining and grumbling, that's unholy. Paul learned to be content, whatever state, right? But if we're so apathetic in our spiritual walk that we have no desire to press on for more of Jesus, more of the Lord, more of his holiness, more of his character, more of his heart, then that's, that's not good either. We need to be discontent in the sense that I want more of you, Lord. Now let's come to the altars tonight and pray, God, I don't want to ju only admire Elijah. I do want to admire Elijah. We're to give honor to whom honors due. But I want, I want you to use me in my day, in this day. I want you to use me for your glory and honor in this day. And I want you to use me in ways that are not natural, and not, that are far beyond me.